everyone, this is Terry Ishmael from uh, Shriner Council Children of Philadelphia, and uh, welcome to another episode of Scoliosis Dialogues uh, from the Scoliosis Research Society. Uh, tonight on the show, I have my co-host, Dr. Jason Brooks from Scottish Rite for Children in Dallas, and we will be uh, discussing the paper from Dr. Subhu Ramchandran from Nicholas Children in Miami. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Ishmael and Dr. Brooks. It's a really, it's an honor for me to be here in the SRS Dialogues. Um, my name is Dr. Ramchandran, and I'm a, pedi a pediatric orthopedic spine surgeon currently practicing at Nicholas Children's Hospital, formerly the Miami Children's Hospital in, in Miami. Um, I, I did my orthopedic residency back in India, after which I did a few fellowships. I did an adult spine, AO spine fellowship at NYU Langone Medical Center and a pediatric spine fellowship here at Nicholas Children's um, before uh, I started my practice here. I'm very fortunate to have great mentors and great partners, uh, especially Dr. Tom Erico and Dr. Stephen George, who, with whom I work. Um, that is my background. Fantastic, yeah, we're very happy to have you here. So why don't you tell us a little bit about your paper, uh, tell us the title and then a little bit of background, why you chose it, and then, you know, just a general spiel. Sure, so um, I believe we are uh, one of the few centers where we have, um, we, we perform MRIs on all preoperative AIS patients, uh, irrespective of whether or not they meet the uh, American Radio Radiological Association criteria. Um, whether it's atypical or not, we routinely perform MRIs. So we definitely have a robust database of patients, uh, whom, uh, AIS patients uh, with MRI. And uh, as a fellow, I was kind of interested because we have had cases where um, we did not perform MRI and we have had uh, neuromonitoring issues intra-op and on retrospect when we went back and did an MRI, we found out that the patient had an intraspinal anomaly, a neural axis anomaly. So uh, we kind of do this on a routine basis. Um, the purpose of this study was inspired by previous uh, literature from uh, by CL at KL et al. in 2020 and uh, and Matthew et al. in 2021 when they published their results of uh, intraoperative neuromonitoring changes in in in, uh, in spinal deformity patients based on the type of the spinal cord at the apex where they defined a classification system and uh, a graded classification system and, and they kind of uh, correlated the intraoperative neuromonitoring alerts um, based on what type of spinal cord the apex is. Um, so th that kind of inspired us to do this study. Uh, the, the, different, uh, the, the, the one different thing about a study is that we have uh, done this purely on an AIS population. The first study that was published in 2020 was done in both mixed of adult and pediatric population. And the study done by Matthew was done in all pediatric spinal deformity uh, patients, uh, but are purely um, AIS patients who do not have um, intraspinal anomalies um, that, 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 uh, that we found. Um, the other thing we wanted to, to kind of in our paper was to uh, see the relationship between the MRI spinal cord and the uh, radiographic parameters to come up with a plan of how we can effectively use MRI to screen patients to predict uh, which patients will have a higher number of intra uh, higher chance of developing intraoperative neuromonitoring alert. 
Very interesting. So, I mean, I know that at my center in Philadelphia, we get MRIs routinely on all spines. What about you, Jason? So, uh, Hello? we are, can you hear me? Yes. Yeah. Perfect. So, we are actually quite different. So, we uh, routinely do not get M MRIs unless they do have some concerning signs when it comes to either their physical exam, whether they have, you know, uh, hyperkyphosis instead of hypokyphosis or something else that just seems off. And so, you know, um, uh, when I was listening to you talk about what your routine is, I guess the first question that popped into my mind is that seems like an immense uh, use of overall healthcare resources. And uh, so I guess what is driving this? Is it a medical legal concern or is it the concern that you all might be finding more type three cords and more neuromonitoring changes? Like what is actually driving that? Since it, it would seem to be an immense cost to do that for every patient. I think it primarily is um, medical legal um, as well as the fact that we have had issues in the past where we have not done MRIs and uh, we have had neuromonitoring alerts. And when we went back, we saw that the patient had, although the patient was asymptomatic, atyp uh, not an atypical patient, not an atypical scoliosis, the patient had uh, intraoperative neuromonitoring alert, which we we thought it could be related to having an intraspinal neuro neuroanatomic anomaly. So that kind of triggered us to do um, MRIs on all, all kind of preoperative AIS patients. Yeah, I think it's a fine balance, right, between like, you know, uh, resource utilization and kind of risk uh, mitigation, right? I know that, uh, you know, in Philadelphia, I mean, it's probably one of the uh, more litigious uh, medical societies around. And uh, I think part of it is, you know, like uh, you were saying, Subhu, um, you know, making sure that we're not missing anything with the evaluation and then to also medical legal as well. So, you know, it's, it's a tough decision. Right. I think in, in this paper, we kind of highlighted that, uh, that uh, I, I believe that MRI should not be the first screening modality um, to predict an intraoperative alert. And, and that's why we wanted to use some radiographic parameters that can guide us to uh, better understand this. I know there's a lot of debate a lot, uh, in a lot of places don't do routine MRIs, even for a, uh, for a, for a typical AIS patient. But I guess uh, we kind of came up with some radiographic parameters that we found had an increased chance of an intraoperative alert. And when that radiographic parameters threshold was met and in combination with the type 3 spinal cord, then the, uh, the, the chance of having an alert was significantly higher. So I, I guess uh, I, I completely yeah, if you can go through those, uh, If you can go through those radiographic parameters, that would be awesome. Sure, yes. listeners. Absolutely. So the, the first radiographic parameter we found was cob angle, the main thoracic cob angle, more than 65 degrees. And uh, what we found as uh, found that uh, when we have a main thoracic cob angle of more than 65 degrees and a type 3 spinal cord at the apex simultaneously, then we had almost a 50% chance of having intraoperative neuromonitoring alert in, a, in, a, in, a AIS, uh, in the AIS population. Uh, the second parameter was the apical vertebral translation when the AVT more than, was more than five centimeters with a type three spinal cord at the apex, then the chance of having an IONM alert was about 35.2%. And uh, the third parameter was the uh, coronal deformity angular ratio. And when the CDAR was uh, more than 10 with a type three spinal cord at the apex, we found that the uh, rate of IONM alerts was about 43.7%. So that's really interesting. 
so then I guess my follow-up question is, now that you all have that data, are you going to change your hospital practice to only get MRIs on those patients? Yeah, or are you still going to get it on everybody? No, possibly we will. Uh, we, we, are, we are discussing that with our team. What do you think, Terry? Do you think that they're going to do things differently at, you know, Shriners? Is this, uh, is this paper going to change, change practice in Philly? For the most point, and I mean, a lot of the curves that we end up seeing are uh, fairly significant, like, you know, greater than 65, 70 degrees. So I think there's a good case to get those in all of those patients. You know, like I trained in Dallas, so like, you know, um, yeah, I definitely came out of there. Um, you know, we are like, I don't need an MRI. We'll just examine them. We'll check the abdominal reflexes and, you know, we get a good history. We should know most things. And I came to Philly for the, you know, finish my training. And then it was kind of like, oh yeah, we're just going to get it anyway. And it gives good information. You know, if there's an intraspinal anomaly, then if you really want, if you have a good quality MRI, you can measure some pedicles and, uh, you know, have a better idea of the anatomy. So, I mean, again, I get them, uh, it's probably not going to change anything that I do. That's really interesting. So follow-up question I had, and again, uh, sorry, I just think this is really interesting, is, is when it comes to the alerts that you talked about. So there are alerts and then there are changes, right? Changes right. that actually you have to actually do something about. And, sure. and so I, I guess what you all, I don't know whether, I, I, for reading through the paper, I couldn't quite tell whether the MRI findings of a type three cord uh, or the alerts that subsequently happened actually made you do something differently in your surgery, right? So if I knew I was going right. into the case with a type three cord, we all know that Lenke's paper talks about potentially doing a, um, a PSO to take down that pedicle so that that uh, cord is not being draped over uh, that you know, pedicle. I would presume most of us are not having to do that routinely for most of the patients with the type three cord. So I guess what would the information that you've obtained from this MRI uh, going into the case, knowing that you're dealing with, with the type three cord, is that changing how you approach these cases? Knowing that uh, we have a type three cord, we are more alert. It doesn't change our routine way that we do the cases, but we kind of have a, um, a, a thorough discussion with the anesthesia and the neuromonitoring team before that we have a high risk patient here um, because of the, the cord that we have seen, uh, the type of the cord that we have seen the apex. So uh, we try to keep the map higher most of the times, even during exposure. Um, we and if if we get any signal changes, then we go back to doing a little compression on the convex side, uh, doing an asymmetric pontis on the convex side, doing compression on the convex side. But uh, to be honest, in our data set that we have seen, we have we had twelve neuromonitoring alerts, and we did that procedure uh, only two times out of twelve, uh, because most of the alerts, about fifty percent of the alerts, were secondary. We thought secondary to hypotension, um, and. Uh, this this study is not um, this study is a retrospective study. I don't think it's uh, appropriately designed to answer that question whether the neuromonitoring alert was a cause of uh, this type of um, spinal cord in this particular patient. It was only designed to study an association between um, between intraoperative alerts and uh, and the uh, type of cord at the apex. What about you, Jason? Do you do anything uh, different? Like, you know, let's say you've got like a 90 degree curve, a high BAR. Do you routinely get the MRIs on those patients? 
So usually not. <laughs> I know mm-hmm. the the things that make me get an MRI are usually if I see kyphosis there or yeah. it looks like there's rapid progression. Um, yeah. and, and so I'm very, uh, I'm, I'm, we are rarely getting it. But yeah. again, many times if we see a very big curve uh, that um, that looks like it's rigid, you know, we are hanging these kids up in halo traction, uh, which potentially may give us a little bit of a pass when it comes to these type three cords. Because if we're slowly stretching them out and then fusing them a couple weeks later, uh, that may potentially decrease those risks. So that might be a confounder a little bit in how some people are approaching these uh, rather than doing just the acute corrections. And so, it, you know, it might be interesting like uh, to even look at a sub-cohort, um, Dr. Rashamdran, of uh, your patients who had type 3 cords and underwent preoperative halo traction if you saw uh, potentially the risk of alerts dropping down even more with the same criteria that you have, just to see, you know, is that potentially like a way around that? Absolutely, I agree. I completely agree with that. In fact, the the, the patient that I, I was talking about, uh, which I clearly remember, was the one whom in which we had done a halo gravity traction prior. Um, it was a very, very severe big curve. And uh, despite that, we had an alert, so we had to go back and do the uh, asymmetric pontes and compress the convex side. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that, like, you know, there's some curves which, you know, will definitely, you know, make you pause and kind of think about it a little bit more. Like, anytime they're you not know, doing anything bigger than 90 degrees, and it's usually myself and a fellow, like, I'm, I'll talk to one of my partners and say, hey, who's around? Uh, you know, tip, I operate on the same day as uh, Amr, um, and, uh, you know, he's usually in the other room or one of the other partners are in clinic. I'd be like, hey, I'm doing this. Uh, just if you're around, I may give you a call just to come down. And it's happened like not infrequently. Like, I mean, it will be something that'll happen even on a smaller curve. And I'll just uh, ask one of them to come take a look. But definitely for bigger curves, uh, I will go out of my way to discuss with somebody and be like, hey, just in case this is what I'm doing, uh, you know, you may get a call. Perfect. So this was a really excellent paper, Dr. Ranshamdran, how how many years into practice are you now? Like, how many years have you been at Miami now? Uh, I'm uh, at the Nicholas Children's Hospital since four and a half years. Okay, so so we would definitely consider you an early kind of career unit you know, surgeon um, and yeah. one of the earlier unit you know, surgeons in the SRS with already an awesome you know publication in our uh, journal. I guess what advice would you have for some of our listeners who are kind of early? career surgeons on kind of starting out uh, their spine deformity practice, any kind of uh, words of wisdom you want to you know, give them as we start to close up this uh, this podcast episode? Uh, I, I truly believe that I'm very fortunate. I truly believe that evidence-based practice is, is kind of uh, very important, especially when we're dealing with these very complex, uh, complex group of population. And we do very thorough pre-operative um, conferences. We do very uh, rigorous planning. Um, and I always operate with uh, one of my senior partners. Um, so I, I think for me, it's very important to have a senior partner um, just because I, I learn constantly and as well, it's, I think it's much safer um, for, for the patient. And regarding research-wise, I, I, I truly believe that we should constantly try to, try to like think about and um, brainstorm and try to come up with ideas um and and pursue and and start the data collection 
to do the do the homework and and i think uh, it, it's, it's a good way to learn more it's a good way to be engaged and um, and sometimes you get lucky you get called in srs podcast so <laughs> i guess that's well deserved great paper thanks sir well, guys, I mean, I, th I think that's it. Uh, you know, um, thank you very much for joining us, Dr. Ramachandran. And uh, on behalf of myself and my uh, co-host, Dr. Brooks, we'd like to say goodnight. And thank you, everyone, for joining us. Thank you, Dr. Shmuel. Thank you, Dr. Brooks. Thank you, SRS. Bye. Awesome. Take care. The Scoliosis Research Society is a nonprofit professional organization made up of physicians and allied health personnel. Their primary focus is on providing continuing medical education for healthcare professionals and on funding and supporting research in spinal deformities. Please visit srs.org for further information.